If you have your Bibles this morning, I would appreciate it if you would turn to the book of Luke chapter 22. As most of you know, today is Palm Sunday, and it represents the beginning of, of what we as believers call Holy Week. And today I really want to focus in on some of the things that happened a little bit later in the week rather than on Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem because I believe that there is some things that happened to him that are deeply appropriate to the lives that we live and how he responded to those. And the title of the message today is The Grace of God in the Face of Jesus. The Grace of God in the Face of Jesus. And before we get into the Word, I'm going to begin with verse 54 in just a minute. There's, there's a piece of information as Jesus is being arrested that in verse 52 it says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officer of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. In other words, there's this, this large group of people that are coming to arrest Jesus in the garden. And he looks at them and he says, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. And then there's this line that Jesus says, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is your hour when darkness reigns. And then we get into the scripture that I really want to use as the text for us today. And beginning with verse 54, it says, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him, and they blindfolded him and, de and demanded, Prophesy, who is it that hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. And at daybreak, at the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you were the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he replied, You are right in saying I am. And they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Heavenly Father, I ask now that as we begin to examine this very difficult and emotional time of the life of Jesus, that there would be information from this that we can draw and begin to draw strength from and information and training from so that when we handle and face the difficult times of our lives, we may handle it with the same grace that you did. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, I've titled this message, The Grace of God in the Face of Jesus. If you were to look up grace within the dictionary or a theological definition, what it would say is that grace is unmerited favor. In other words, it would be that you are giving 
something, you are given something that you do not deserve. And chances are every one of us have experienced that at one time or another in our life where we have been given something that we did not deserve. Someone else defined grace as an acronym that said God's riches at Christ's expense. And I like that as a Christian definition of grace. But the word grace is a lot like the word love. In other words, it's something that you really can't just define with a dictionary explanation. It's something that there is a behavior that is associated with it. One of the things that I do when I'm uh, interviewing couples before they get married and we're kind of going through some counseling is I said, I would love to be able at your 10-year anniversary to call the news and have them come to your house because in these 10 years you have demonstrated such an uncommon love for the way that you love one another that the news wants to come to your house and, and to film you for a day. And I said, what I want you to think about is what you would do for one another knowing that you were being filmed for an uncommon love because love is a behavior. Grace is also a behavior. And out of this particular passage of Scripture, we see the behavior that Jesus formed and the way that he acted, how grace behaves. And we see it in these three ways. We see it, number one, how does grace behave when somebody fails us? How does grace behave when we are struck or assaulted? How does grace behave when we are faced with injustice? And we see in the face of Jesus all of these things that I do believe have a a role to play in our life. We notice that he was failed by Peter, he was struck by the militia, and he was unfairly accused of some things in a court, in the tribunal. And when we look at the scripture today, we see what grace is and we see the behavior of grace. We see how it behaves so that we then can model that behavior in our own life. If you have your bulletins, there's an outline of these three points if you want to jot down some notes. The first point is this, grace when failed by a friend. It's Peter's failure, and we can all identify with Peter, probably maybe more so than anybody else in the Bible. We look at Peter's life, and there are aspects of his personality and the traits that he has that that we look at and say, you know what, I can see myself in him. But in all of this, we know that Peter failed the Lord and that he had failed other people. And sometimes we fail not only other people, but we fail ourselves. In Peter's case, there were three ingredients that were present within his life that I think are important for us to know because they set off the dynamite of this failure. The first one is this. Peter had relied on his self-sufficiency. He thought that he was better and stronger than he really was. In fact, the Lord had said to Peter, you are going to deny me, and it really infuriated Peter. I don't know if Jesus has ever talked to you and made you mad by what he reveals about you, but he was revealing to Peter that you're not nearly as strong as you think you are, and Peter stood in his face and basically said, I don't know who you're talking about. I look at all these other men, these disciples around us, and I can see failure in them, but you haven't seen it in me, and I want you to know I will not deny you. I will not fail you. And in that self-sufficient attitude we find that he led himself right into danger. I have discovered in people that if we get too confident in our own abilities, if we begin to think that we are incapable of being tempted or if we are incapable of failing, that that self-sufficiency begins to light a fuse that will lead us to destruction. And in Peter's life, it was one of the first signs that he was going to be in trouble when he looked at Jesus and said, it will never happen to me. I am stronger than you think and I am tougher than you think. And so... You have mischaracterized me if you think that I will fail. The second thing that was in Peter's life that led him to this was prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. 
In fact, we know as we read this passage that in the garden they were together and the Lord had asked his disciples, can you pray with me for just one hour? Just one hour can you make it? And Jesus goes to pray and the disciples huddle together and I don't know how many of you ever tried to pray when you're really tired and it's dark and it's quiet, but whatever it was, they failed miserably. Peter being one of them, just could not stay awake. And in this one hour when Jesus is pouring out his heart to God the Father, they couldn't even last that long. And Jesus is praying, Lord, would you, would you help them so that they don't enter into temptation? But this lack of prayer in Peter's life had opened him up to the failure that was about to take place. So on one hand, he thinks he's stronger than he is. On the other hand, he can't even pray for an hour. And the third thing that we begin to see within this passage is that he was really living a life of indecision. We read in the scripture that after Jesus was arrested, he was taken to the court, and Peter followed closely. He wanted to be near Jesus. In fact, he was so close that later on it says that Jesus could see him. So he's standing there in the crowds of people, and and as he's wanting to be with Jesus, there's a side that says, I'm going to be faithful, and there's this other side that says, I want to be safe. And so on this, we see that as he's hanging between these two opinions of just how important Jesus is going to be in his life versus his own uh, sense of protecting himself, we see the first thing as somebody says, hey, aren't you with him? And in that instant, rather than being close to Jesus and being faithful, the failure begins to come when he begins to deny him. And this takes place three times. And we begin to look at this, and and many of us can look at Peter's life and, and Look at him through, through the eyes of, boy, I'm a lot better off than he is, but I want you to know something. When we look at Peter's life, we recognize that there's times in our lives that we feel stronger in the Lord than we really are. There's times in our life when we choose to be prayerless because we'd rather do other things than pray. And there are times when we want to be close to the Lord, but we really want to play it safe too. I want the best that all this world has to offer, and I want the best of being a child of God. And so, Lord, if you don't mind, I'm going to hang near the fence on this thing. And depending on what comes along, if I've already declared to you how strong I am, and if I've already shown that there's other things more important than prayer in my life, then it will not be a surprise when I'm faced with the pressure and I fail you for my own protection rather than standing with you. And we can begin to recognize those things in our life because in many instances, these things, characteristics, fall within our life. And I can't imagine, you know, the scripture tells us that after the rooster had crowed, that the, it tells us the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And I have to imagine that in that moment, that what took place within his life is suddenly everything that he had declared to the Lord that he was, he had this personal recognition of, I am not who I thought I was. Now, I don't know how many of you in the quietness of your own homes when nobody else is around have stared yourself in a mirror and mouthed the words, I don't even know who you are because your own actions and your own thoughts and your own words have betrayed who you said that you would be in the face of the Lord But I want you to know that in that instant when Jesus looked at Peter, I believe that Jesus didn't look at him with anger or retaliation or a scowl, but he looked at him with genuine uh, compassion and empathy and concern. And Peter knew that. He would have almost rather that Jesus would have been mad at him than just to look at him with understanding and say, see, I knew where you really were. And his response to this was that he went out and he wept bitterly. 
I do believe that we as believers have times in our life when we are so sorry and so saddened by what we do that we weep in the presence of a God who understands us even when we don't understand ourselves. But here's what I love about this, is that when Jesus looked at him in his failure, he didn't look at him in such a way as to say, you have lost all of my respect. I can never do anything with you, and I just want to get you away from me. I no longer will be considered your friend. But he looked at him in such a way that somehow Peter's brokenness was an opportunity to be put back together. This is the greatest news of looking grace in the eyes in the face of Jesus and recognizing that regardless of the broken places of your life today, we have a God who demonstrates grace by looking at you and saying, I can still put you back together again. Whatever you have done is not so much that I will remove you from me and never give you another chance, but I am the God that redeems and we see in the face of Jesus A grace that comes to our rescue when we have been failed by a friend. Years ago on a leadership conference I went to, there was a a very established pastor that was standing there and as he was talking to all of us young ministers, he said, one of the things that you need to know about me is he said, when I'm looking for people that come onto my staff, I look for people that have experienced that have had bruises in their life, that have had times of hurt in their life. He says, because when I know that God has put them back together, I recognize that they will also have that same attitude toward others. He says, the people that think they've got it all together are dangerous people. He says, the bruises that we carry through life are indications of the grace of God as it is acted out in our life as he puts us back together. Peter went out and wept, and he had a teardrop in his life that remained forever. But what he recognized is that God's grace is all about helping us where we have failed him. And he doesn't shove us away. In fact, we find it interesting that after the resurrection, when the angel appeared to the ladies, they said, go and tell the disciples and tell Peter. Because Peter knew in his heart that he had disqualified himself. And Jesus wanted him to know that grace in action takes you at your worst and will rebuild you into something that will be better. Because God's grace and his love always individualizes us. Don Baker, who's a pastor in the Northwest, lives out in the country, and he says, I live next to a sheep farm. And he says, one day, my wife and I, we love to have coffee on our deck, and as we're looking over the sheep farm, there's a sheep that's that's laying upside down, and all four of its legs are just sticking straight up in the air. And he says, as we're having coffee, we're kind of staring at that sheep, and we're just looking at it, and he goes, that sheep didn't move. He, He said, that sheep is dead. That is a dead sheep. And so they knew the farmer, so they called him and said, hey, you got a dead sheep out here, and really we're having coffee, and that's not what we want to see. So if you come and just kind of dig your dead sheep out of that ditch over there, we really appreciate it. And so the farmer comes, and he goes out there, and he drives his truck, and he gets up there near that sheep, and he looks up, and he knows them well, sees them on the porch, and he says, hey, come over here. I want you to see this. And they're thinking, well, why do we want to go see a dead sheep? And as they wandered their way over there, they got there, and what had happened The farmer says, these sheep, before we shear them, the wool gets so heavy on their back. And he says, and especially if we're dealing with sheep that are about to have lambs, he says, that if they lay on an incline, they can't control their own weight, and so they will roll upside down. And he says, that's called a cast sheep. And he says, and when a sheep lays upside down for any length of time, they don't wiggle their legs around, they just stick them straight up in the air. He said, so this... This sheep that you think is dead is, we call it a cash sheep. 
And he goes, so what do you do? You're going to yell at it? Hey, get up, sheep. He goes, no, this sheep, this sheep is incapable of getting up on its own. So the farmer went over there and reached underneath his big old woolly sheep and gets it up and begins to rub its legs to get the blood back in the legs. And he says, after a while, this sheep begins to shake its head and wobble around a little bit, and it, and it runs off. And, and he says, I've never seen anything like that in my life. Being that this guy was a pastor, everything he went through in life, he thought, that's going to be a great illustration someday. Because there are times in our life when the weight of our own sin and the weight of our own expectations has rolled us into a position where we can't do anything about our own life. This sheep would literally have died had it not been for a shepherd that came and lifted it up, rubbed the, the blood back into its legs, and give it hope. We live in a world today where people are telling you that you can fix yourself. Where if you just try hard enough, and sometimes we as the church see people that are like cast sheep and they're laying upside down and the weight of their sin and burdens have, have got them in a place where they can't move and we come by and we're going, hey, get up! Hey, boop, boop, and we kick at them a little bit. And say, you know what, if you just had the strength, you could do this on your own. And you know, you, you, The food is over there, but sometimes the shepherd needs to come with his own hands. Take that sheep that can't do anything and lift them up and, and work the life back into them. I am so glad today that I declare to you that Jesus, in the face of failure, saw Peter as a sheep and went over there and said, I have not given up on you. In the face of your failure as my friend, I want you to know that I will rebuild you. And so today... We recognize as we look at Jesus that grace in the face of a failed friendship or those that betray you, the picture of grace is Jesus restoring. Secondly, in Jesus we see grace when he's assaulted. In verses 63 through 65, it says the men who were guarding Jesus. I, I think that that term, I, I, as I was reading that this week, it just they were supposed to be guarding Jesus. But the men who were guarding him began to mock him and beat him, and they blindfolded him. And they demanded, prophesy, who is it that hit you? And so literally they put a blindfold on Jesus, and they're taking turns punching him in the face and in the body, and they're standing back and they're laughing and say, if you're really the prophet, then you tell us which one of our fists is the one that just struck you. They played the prophet game with him. Hey, mighty prophet. Tell us what's going on. Interesting enough, it's a different game than the Roman soldiers played with him later that morning when they would take him and they would put a purple cloth over him and a crown of thorns on his head and they beat him and they spit at him and they struck him with their, fear, with their fists and, and the Roman soldiers played the game. Uh, if you're really the king, then act like a king. We're, we're going to mock you by ramming this crown of thorns on your head. So they played the game of mocking him as prophet and mocking him as king. And in all of this, Jesus is subject to physical abuse and verbal abuse and psychological abuse. And so often happens is when we go through situations like this in our own life, what often happens is we take on the character of the person who is hitting us or the person that is angry at us, or the person that is yelling at us. And so if they're yelling, we yell. If they hit, we hit. If they scream, we scream. And we begin to mirror that image. If they're unkind, we're unkind. But Jesus gives us this marvelous picture of what grace looks like and how it acts. Because in the middle of all of this, when he's hit, 
Isaiah tells us that he makes no accusation. In the middle of this abusive situation, Jesus does not mirror the character of those that are abusing him. I think one of the things that's probably the hardest thing to do in our life is to not mirror the attitudes of those that don't like us. There are those that, even this week I got a text from an individual saying, I am having a horrible, horrible day at work. I feel like people are out to get me. Can you pray? Have any of you ever felt like that? That, that it's just, it doesn't matter what's going on, that everything surrounding you seems to be trying to tear you down and you just don't figure a way that you can get through all of this. The hardest thing for us to do is not to mirror that character back to them. Because what's the first thing that comes to mind when we get yelled at? Well, I'm a better yeller than you are. But in, in gentleness... Jesus responded to this massive violence against him with gracefulness and gentleness, and he never let his own face become contorted with the anger and the mocking that was surrounding him. And there are those of you today that at this very moment, there are things that are running through your mind as it relates to aspects of life that you're going through that are so very, very difficult because you're feeling picked on and you're feeling as if I'm going through things that are unfair. And the Lord is speaking to you saying, but I want you to know that as I live within you, the grace, the way grace looks is don't mirror that character back to them. But let me help you in those situations to rise above it. There's a book that's entitled These Tears Are for Diane. The author, as far as I know, has only written one book, and her name is Goldie Bristol. The book is really a form of a personal testimony that she and her husband went through when their daughter Diane in the early 1970s was coming home from work. She got out of her car, and she was assaulted by a man who ultimately raped and murdered her in her own driveway. It took two years before the individual was caught and brought to trial, and at the end of that trial, he was sentenced to two life sentences. Five years later, after Christ had done a marvelous work within this Bristol family's life, they began to feel an impression on their spirit that they needed to write this man a letter in prison. And they battled with that. I mean, if there was ever a person they thought deserved hell, it would be him. But as they're going through this process, they begin to recognize an urgency that God was leading them to do something and that they needed to reach out. And so finally, they came to this conclusion together. They said, we can see no other purpose for this man coming into our lives if there's no possibility that he will be saved. We didn't ask for this intruder to come into our life, but now that he's here, God can work some good in it. He needs to know that God loves him and that God will forgive him if he will ask him to. He needs to know that this is the face of the grace of God in action. So they sat down and they wrote him a letter. And they wrote him a letter, and in that letter they included the steps on how he can come to know the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they sent it, they didn't hear a thing back. And after several weeks, they thought, I wonder if he got it. And they decided, you know what, we're going to try again. And so they sat down together and they wrote another letter, and they sent it to him. After the second letter, they finally got a response. The man that was in prison said, the reason I didn't write back to you the first time is because I could hardly believe that this letter would be genuine. But when the second letter arrived, I realized that you who should hate me the most are showing a genuine concern for me. 
I had not realized that there were people anywhere in the world who could put their concern for me above their own hurt. And Goldie said that after they wrote this man a lengthy correspondence, they asked if we could come and meet with him. And as they went to the prison to face down the man who had, in fit of anger, had killed their own daughter, they knew that their hate would not bring their daughter back, and they knew that their hate would only be a poison of anger and unforgiveness in their own life, and that hate wouldn't do their killer any good. So they felt like we have no option but to come and speak to you. And in meeting with this man, they led him to Jesus Christ. The dictionary associates malice with the word malignancy. It's something that eats us. It consumes us, and finally it destroys us. And if we allow malice to take hold in my life, then I am anything but a free person. I am a captured person. The very thing that I hope traps the other person becomes a chain to me and holds me back, and only God is able to handle this kind of treachery in our lives and release us from this entrapment of unforgiveness and hatred, so the decision is mine. I either carry anger and unforgiveness and resentment around with me, or I stand up and give the load to Jesus, one who has already demonstrated what it's like to have your heart broken, unfairly accused, things that should never have happened, and give it to him so that he can be the redeemer. So today if you're battling with aspects of unforgiveness within your life because of things that have happened to you, verbal abuse, physical abuse, psychological abuse, I want you to know there's a redeemer today who has demonstrated to us in the last days of his earthly life before Easter, he demonstrated to us what grace looks like in the face of abuse. And thirdly, he showed us what Grace looks like when we are victimized by injustice. If you were to take the, the gospel that we read in Luke and you combine it with the other gospels and the story that they begin to read about what Jesus' last days are like, what you recognize is that Jesus really faced two trials. There was a political trial and there was a religious trial. The religious trial being first. And the object of the religious trial was to raise the question of whether he was indeed the Messiah. The object of the political trial was to raise the question whether he was indeed a king, the king of the Jews. And so they were trying to try him on two separate issues in two separate ways in two separate trials. And because if they could accuse him of being a king, then they could, they could convict him of trying to overthrow the government. But in this religious trial, it was divided into three phases. He had one phase before Annas, the other before Caiaphas. Both of those were informal hearings. And then in the final formal hearing, which we read about, he stands there before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, and which was illegally constituted. For any of you that may know anything about law, and I don't know much about it, but as I was reading this, they were indicating that it is highly irregular and highly illegal for the presiding judge to also be the one making accusations that it was highly illegal and highly irregular for the presiding judge to be the one that was, that was paying people for false testimony. But that was what was happening here. There could not have been anything that would have been more illegal or more injustice-serving than the trials of Jesus. But they kept wanting to portray him as a political messiah 
His kingdom, he said, was not of this world, but it's God's reign in the heart. And he knows that they're not going to engage him, and he knows that they're not going to let him ask any questions of them because he's already made them look foolish through the years of of asking questions, so they want him to remain silent. He says, if I were to ask you, you would remain silent. You wouldn't answer me. And so they begin with this explicit testimony that the Son of Man, he says, will be seated at the right hand of God. And then they ask him, are you the Son of God? And he says, you're right in saying that I am. And that becomes the indictable charge against him, that they have worked and created this false mock of a trial to get to. This whole engagement is a complete miscarriage of justice. But in it, we see the grace of God when you're being treated unfairly. We see the grace of God, what grace in action looks like when everybody is out to get you. And we see this in our lives and we're going, man, I would have wanted to have a vigorous defense. I would have wanted to defend myself. I would have wanted to use all the knowledge. This is the reason I am not God because the trial would have turned out differently had I been God. But what we see in this is that it says in Isaiah that Jesus didn't open his mouth. He had all of the truth. He had all of the argument. He could have ended their life with a thought, but he didn't even open his mouth. It reminded me in a very mild way of a trial that I had heard about some years ago by a man by the name of John Demjanjuk, who was an auto mechanic working in Cleveland, Ohio. And after being an auto mechanic for 30 years, somebody accused him of being Ivan the Terrible who had sat uh, outside the ovens of the Jews in, in one of the concentration camps called Treblinka. And he was taken out of our country, and he was brought to a trial. While they were there in the trial, they were bringing Jews that had been in that concentration camp. And, and by now, it's been 40-plus years since that time, and they're asking him, does he look like the man who you remember as a child being outside the gates? And they're all saying, yes, yes, he looks like it, he looks like it. And... and One of the attorneys asked one of the people that were sitting there, would you get out of your seat and would you go? And this is all happening in a language that he doesn't know. He sees the witness get out of the seat and come around there and begin to walk to him. And John, seeing him come, stands up and smiles at him and reaches out his hand to shake his hand, thinking he may be coming for something that would be more friendly than to be identified as a killer. And as he reaches out his hand, the witness falls on the floor and screams, I cannot touch you. I cannot touch you. I cannot forgive you. And there with his hand out, not knowing everything that's going on, he sees somebody falsely accusing him. It was later determined that all of the papers that they had had were not him. But he faced the trial being falsely accused of being this Ivan the Terrible. And the newspaper reporter that was there saying, I will never forget as long as I live the look in his face as he thinks somebody is coming and he stands up and he smiles knowing that this man had the ability to accuse him to his own death, but he stood up and smiled to shake his hand. I believe that all of those who were accusing Jesus that day, had they just turned for a moment, would have found a loving Savior. That if they had come to him, not in an accusing way, but come to him to find him a savior, would have found not only did he want to shake their hand, but he would have embraced the very ones that were out to destroy him. Because frankly, you and I are no better. And as we approach this holy season, we see the picture of God's grace 
and the face of Jesus in different ways that we never thought we could. We're talking about God's grace. We're not talking about the grace that humans can do. We're talking about what God can do. In fact, it says that, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Or Paul goes on to say, For a friend we might die, but Jesus died for us while we were yet his enemies, while we were falsely accusing him, while we were those that were abusing him, while we were the friends that betrayed him. While we were in the middle of all of this, he loved us and showed us the picture of this grace. That's the grace of God in the face of Jesus that we love and serve as we prepare for a great Easter Sunday next week. And he addresses us at levels that we really need to be addressed at because we face these issues every day. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me as we prepare to sing with our worship team and then prepare for an altar response. your heads for a moment perhaps there's one of these aspects that the grace of Jesus addresses that is something that's going on in your life right now maybe you're struggling because you've been betrayed in a friendship or perhaps it's been a marriage or perhaps it's been a business partnership and you're really struggling with this idea of betrayal and today the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to you about how to respond because we've seen the picture of grace 
Perhaps you are one of those that you have been suffering because of psychological or verbal or even physical abuse and you're sitting here today and your whole life has just been planned in self-preservation and yet we see today that the Lord is saying that regardless of what you're going through, I can stand with you so that you don't have to mirror that characteristic back. Or perhaps today you are suffering because of injustice, things that just simply are not fair. And you're wondering why God isn't doing something about it and coming to your rescue. But yet in the middle of this, he asked, would you just let my picture of grace, the the grace of God through the face of Jesus, be alive in you? If you find yourselves in one of those situations today, would you just simply look up where you're at? Just, Just look up. Yes, 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 yes. Heavenly Father. Because we are real people and we live in a world, oh God, where right before you arrested, you said, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. And it seems as if times that we live in, Lord, are in, we are in a darkness where, where the enemy is reigning. And I pray that we see the grace of God in the face of Jesus and that that might be reflected in us, oh Lord, even though it is incredibly difficult. But you told us that when you come into our life that you make us a new creature and that our nature is no longer the nature of the old man, but it's the nature of God. And for those that are struggling today, and Father, there were many, many faces today. I ask that they would lay hold with their hand and in their spirit of the strength of a mighty God who even though he faced the failure of a friend, the abuse of those that hated him, and the injustice of those that wanted to destroy him, never, never, never lowered himself to that character, but demonstrated grace. And Father, today we fit within the category of each of these because we've done all of that to you. I betrayed your friendship. Been times, oh God, when my behavior and activities and words have been verbally hurtful to you times, Lord God, that I am certain that in my life there's been injustice as it's related to you. And Father, to that we come and we thank you that you are a God that doesn't give us what we deserve, but you give us grace. 